Okay, I'm going. I'm starting to record just so I don't like forget forget it or anything. But I'm mm-hmm. excited to interview you. Thanks for doing this. Glad to see someone. Yeah. <laughs> so. Hello, I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm excited to interview my friend, Dr. Aaron Pan, who is. What's your formal title? I should have asked that first. I am uh, executive director of the Museum of Texas Tech University and, I guess, associate professor in practice. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for being on my podcast, and it's good to see you. Good to see you, too. We miss you in Amarillo, but I know you've moved on to more exciting things, maybe, than running the Discovery Center, which was wonderful as well. But tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, so like how far back in background, like I was, like I was born on a stormy night. Of, I know, I think. Uh, maybe your, your education okay. history and such. Sure. Um, so I originally actually born in, um, San Francisco, California on the Presidio. Oh. Um, my dad's an army doctor. And so, and then, um, when I was really young, they, uh, transferred him to Beaumont and to Fort Bliss in El Paso. So we, were in El Paso for about four years, and then uh, 1984, moved to Amarillo, Texas, and I went um, uh, kindergarten through 12th grade there uh, as uh, going to Emerald High, go Sandys, and then <laughs> uh, from there um, went and did my undergraduate uh, work at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, oh, majored. What a beautiful place. Yeah. That's, it, <laughs> we, we visited it once uh, during a Christmas holiday in California, and uh, I said, I'm going here. Um, originally, was went there because I wanted to do marine biology. So actually, so it yeah. made sense to, to, to do that. Um, but actually was, uh, was part of the College of Creative Studies at UC Santa Barbara, which is an interesting uh, program in which case your very first year you sit down with a um, professor and it's, it's focused on basically those who want to go and do graduate school. And so sort of setting you off to, to, you know, to build, um, to build on that so that you're actually picking courses that you know that you're going to continue on, that your terminal degree is not going to be a bachelor's, but you're going to go on. And so, so, um, with that, I was actually able to start taking upper division and graduate school courses starting freshman year, which was wonderful. Oh, wow. Um, and so uh, with that, I fell in love with actually um, geology and paleontology. And so um, graduated it with, you know, College of Creative Studies with biology emphasis. Uh, I knew that I wanted to do paleontology and particularly paleobotany. Um, and most people, don't, when they think of paleontology, they don't think of fossil plants. But really, how do you, how does that, you know, you get, you learn a lot more of the world from the, from the plants and sort of what the vegetation was like. And so I was really fascinated by that. Um, I wanted to work in paleobotany, but a lot of that work is done, um, field work is done in typically the Northern Hemisphere, typically in North America or um, uh, Europe or Asia. And I really wanted to actually learn more about what was actually going on in the tropics. And so um, I applied to three places. Uh, well, actually, I applied to four places and actually um, applied to University of Michigan because there was a paleobotanist named uh, Dr. Robert Burnham who worked in the neotropics, particularly in um, uh, northern South America. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Jacobs at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, who works on uh, in Africa, and then um, applied to University of Florida um, 
and uh, Steve Manchester, who uh, does work all over the world, but I was hoping that, you know, we could do something in Southeast Asia. I also applied to actually Texas A&M um, because I was also interested at the time in uh, the identification and evolutionary history of um, wasps, particularly velvet ants. And so uh, I applied there as well. Um, got into at least two or three of those programs. I decided to go to SMU after I visited and, and, and um, the work that Dr. Jacobs was doing. So I did not realize all that. Yeah. So, and then, so what did you end up studying? So I studied, uh, I worked in, uh, worked on tropo, uh, and the evolution of forests in Africa, um, mainly focused on, um, in Ethiopia. So I did six trips to Ethiopia, a total of, you know, uh, two and a half to four weeks each time. And so, um, worked on, this very interesting forest flora of leaves and f fossil leaves and fruits and, and wood, um, mainly looking at the identification of the, the leaves and a little bit of the fruits um, from around 27 million years ago in Ethiopia. Now, um, what's That's kind of... Not quite the tropics, was it then? Oh, it was. Oh, it definitely was okay. then. Okay. Uh, what's, what's, what's interesting is that um, Africa and actually the Arabia, Arabian Peninsula as well um, for much of its history uh, was an island continent. And so, uh, and most of what was on that island continent, uh, what most people think of sort of Africa fauna today, your, your uh, giraffes, your zebras, your um, antelopes, your lions, your big cats, your big game, um, your hippos and stuff like that. Most of that is actually um, from uh, Eurasia. And so all of that sort of only comes in once Africa collides with Africa and the Arabian Peninsula collide with, with Eurasia. And so um, it's sort of a weird fauna prior to that. So things that you typically, um, those things that are sort of native, native to Africa, like f talking 50 million years ago, and uh, there's things like the elephants, the proboscideans, hyraxes, uh, teneryx, um, some of these sort of like unusual things. Primates, primates are also from Asia originally, but they come in a little bit sooner than when Africa hits the, um, uh, the Eurasian continent. So uh, we'll sort of like, what were these forests like back then? Um, and, and what did it look like? Um, for Ethiopia, it was pretty cool. It, um, it's very, those forests back then were very similar to sort of what you'd find in the Congo Basin today or the Albertines, um, sort of, you know, what you'd find in, in Democratic Republic of Congo. So... And I just, I, when I think of fossilization, I don't think of it in moist climates. Obviously, they, yeah, swamps and such, mm -hmm. you know, do create fossilization mm -hmm. of, of animals and plants. So what did you, what did you find in Ethiopia? So we found a lot of really, so what's, what's, what was amazing is that these things were really well preserved. What it was, was basically, um, a forest growing um, along a river, and we're looking at what are called overbank deposits. So whenever these rivers sort of overflood, they they seep water on you know over, and what happens is 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 this sort of catchment of leaf beds that are right there. You know the water flows over them, sediments gets on top of them. This is actually the start of right around thirty million years ago is when you have the Ethiopian plateau sort of rising. That's again that is this massive volcanic 
eruptions that went on for several, you know, 100,000 years, million year, millions of years. And so, you know, most people, when they think of Africa, they're thinking of, you know, the Serengeti, you know, Masai Mara, um, where, where we are, uh, Af- Ethiopia is sort of known as the roof of Africa, because again, you're, you're, you've got these high elevations because of this, these volcanic mesas. And so right here, you've got a lot of volcanism going on. You have a lot of sediment being produced. You got a lot of erosion. It's very warm and hot. So basically you're looking at sort of a, uh, primordial African for African rainforest of what you have today. And so it's sort of a very fascinating thing. Um, and these things are so well preserved. Uh, it sort of gives you an idea of what that forest sort of was like um, over a very short period of time. So it wasn't like bare, it, it, it wasn't over, say, thousands and thousands of years. You're looking at sort of a, at a sort of a nice glimpse wow. in time. And these leaves actually have, you, you can actually see cellular detail when you put them under a microscope. You can see microscopic hairs on them. You can see um, the the marks of where insects have chewed. You can see, you know, fungal, you know, fungus, you know, mushrooms and stuff like that or, or, or epiphytes that are growing on the, the leaves themselves that these, you know. As a fossil. As in the fossil, yeah, wow, exactly. And so, cool. and, and so we saw really cool stuff. And again, most of these things are probably some of the earliest representatives that, or at least that we found and identified um, that are now, you know, Africa, that are found in, found in rainforest in Africa today and things like that. So. And what trees, you know, since people are more familiar with trees probably than some of the lower vegetation. Yeah, of course. And actually that's mainly what you're getting is the trees. So uh, one of them is it's, it's actually called, it's the, the genus is called cola and it's actually, and that, and the genus cola produces a, uh, one of the species in that genus is cola acuminata, which is the cola nut. And the cola nut was original, was one of the ingredients that was used in sort of those medical tonics originally yeah. with, with cocaine. That's where you get Coca-Cola. Yeah. And, and so that's where, so cola is actually a very diverse um, genus of around 70 to 120 species of rainforest trees in, in Africa. They're typically, uh, they're, they're, they're in the hibiscus family. And so uh, we have that there. Uh, we have a lot of palms there, which is actually really unusual because most, you know, most people do think of palms as in the tropics, but in Africa, there are fewer species of palms on the entire continent than in Singapore. Wow, which is really, which is really impressive. So it's really unusual. Um, there, we, the other thing, um, what's interesting about rainforest, you know, you sort of see trees, and you're like, how would you even understand sort of what's going on? What's really interesting is that in the way these forests are sort of what their, their composition, they're, they're sort of a, there's sort of a rhyme and reason to, to them. Um, in Africa and in South America, members of the legume family, the bean family are one, are probably the most dominant families there. So if you, if any, you know, you walk through a hectare of forest in a for in a forest in the neotropics or Africa, you're going to find, you know, several species that are in the bean family. And that makes sense. So we have a lot of those. Um, we have members of the uh, sumac family. Um, I think you have like Chinese sumac. You know, people grow in their yards in Amarillo, um, but it's in the it's that's the same family that includes cashews and pistachios and things like that. Um, we have members of the citrus family that are growing there. Um, we have. Um, just some really cool plants that are growing there. So, but again, it gets, it, 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 what's interesting is you have to sort of, to be able to do that. And even as recently as if you study any plants that are basically, let's say 50 million year, 50 million years or, or, or younger, 
you actually sort of have to get a good idea and identification of modern plants because a lot of those genera are the same genera that, that exist today. The species have changed, but the genera are typically the same. So that's what you did your PhD work on? I did my PhD work on that. So, right. so, um, and then that's, <laughs> and, and that's not at all where I was going with no, exactly. this discussion, but I couldn't pass it up because I knew you had an interesting right, scientific you, yeah. research background so. and, and I wanted to pick your brain on that and learn a little bit myself too. Yeah. So, um, Besides the PhD work that we we did, um, you know, I've I've always been interested in the natural world since I was a little kid. You know, that was we were watching Discovery Channel or National Geographic's or um, you know, particularly you know, if there's anything about orcas and killer whales or bald eagles, I was really interested in in all that. Um, and so I've always you know I, I'd always read a lot of about all that and just and took that in. And I think because. I still maintain that interest even while I was, you know, typically what happens when you get a PhD, you know, you're sort of, this is your focus and stuff like that. Um, I would still do that sort of my, my daytime thing, but I'd be interested in other stuff at, at night. And so um, that as well. So when I graduated with my PhD from SMU, um, that, that sort of broader knowledge and interests helped me um, get the position of curator of science at the Fort Museum of Science and History. And so that, yeah, so that's, we, so after I graduated in 2007, uh, we moved to Fort Worth, and I was a curator there for four years. Great. Um, I did not know <laughs> that before. And then you moved to Amarillo? And I moved to, then I moved back to Amarillo. Um, you know, it was, you know, the Fort Museum of Science and History is, is, is wonderful, um, but this, it, it, I couldn't pass up, you know, being in a place where it sort of sparked my interest, you know, one of my interests in science to begin with, as well as, you know, we had kids at that point. It'd be nice for them to see both sets of grandparents, and so... Um, and then also, you know, to be able to be the executive director of a, a major museum in, in, in Amarillo was, was... So that's the Don Harrington Discovery mm -hmm. Center, which is a children's science museum. It is. It's a science museum. Um, and uh, it, it was, that, was, that was wonderful as well. And so that's where I was for, for eight wonderful years. And, and now from Ethiopia, you're now in Lubbock, Texas. I am. I am. I am <laughs> as well. But. And you're director of the, or executive director of the museum here. Yes. Okay. I, and when I put TTU Museum into Google Maps, it didn't show anything. So I had to put museum. Of Texas Tech University. And then exactly. It up. Exactly. So you've, a, you've dealt with that. Actually, that was Apple Maps. <laughs> so. so. <laughs> um, okay. So I. You know, I went to tech. Uh, some of my graduate work was done over here at the part of the museum, but not. Let's talk about the public face in the museum and the role it plays in educating the community at large for right. for visitors. Let's talk about that a little yeah. bit. So, the Museum of Texas Tech um, University it's it's over two hundred thousand square feet. Um, it is a uh, what did. They sometimes call it a, a general museum, although I don't like that term. I thought multidisciplinary museum. In fact, that it's not it's not it's not a solely an art museum. It's not solely a natural history museum. It's not solely a history museum. It covers a broad range of topics, and so that includes anthropology, uh, and that includes ethology as well. Uh, it includes clothing and textiles. It includes history. It includes art. It includes the natural sciences, uh, zoology. Um, and then includes uh, paleontology as well. And so we have a, we, we actually have a lot of disciplines um, and, you know, curatorial staff for all of those. So.
talk about your role as as director. Yeah. So as a, as a executive director, um, you know, just making sure that this place doesn't, you know, that you know, one is to be the you know the main promoter of the museum itself. Um, one is to make sure that it, it's it's running as as it should, and then also to get us re, to get resources for the museum as we need, and then make sure that we're also helping the community and what you know that we're serving it, and as and that community. Again, because it's so multifaceted, we're we're serving many parts. That is that includes, you know, the university itself. That include including its staff and faculty and and researchers. It includes the general public from the Lubbock area as well as the South Plains, as well as you know you know on the state and national and and international level. It um, also means that uh, you know to to work with the graduate school and the program we have here on, uh, which is on heritage and museum science. And so there's actually a master's program here that's that's housed in here. And then uh, it also includes the Lubbock Lake Landmark, which is a wonderful archeological site that is just north of, of where we are now, uh, which basically goes back to the uh, um, late Pleistocene and all the way well, up to the historic times, so. Well, let's talk about, as, when I first arrived, we toured, you took me on a mm -hmm. tour of the, of the of the front of the museum, mm -hmm. the, the public part of it. And lots of wonderful collections, mm -hmm. mostly from your collection, a few visiting um, mm -hmm. or traveling exhibits. Um, but you mentioned a number of how many, how many items. Objects you, and specimens do we have. Yeah. Yeah. So we have um, a little over 8.8 .8 million objects and specimens. And so it makes us quite large. We're probably... Um, in just the natural history side of it, we're probably the 19th largest collection in the United States. And that's amongst a little over 800 natural history collections and, you know, you know, institutional collections in the United States. So that's not bad. Um, and then in terms of some of those collections, breaking those collections, we're actually more higher, you know, we're, we're even, you know, our rankings are, are going up. In fact, we have probably, as you have seen probably when you have visited uh, we have a natural science uh, research laboratory that warehouses most of the biological specimens. Uh, we probably have the um, we have we we have one of the largest frozen tissue and genetics resources collections in the country, a little over um, four hundred forty thousand. Um, and I'm going to get Robert Bradley who exactly that who will be able to sometime. rattle all of that to you. Um, <laughs> our, you know, we have one of the largest mammal collections in the United States. Um, we have very few. We have, we have uh, in terms of that, we have mammals, we have birds, uh, we have uh, invertebrates, particularly insects. Um, we do not have many or, or any actually collections of reptiles or in amphibians. And so, really? uh, but yeah, so our, so, so our strength is really, it is really on the mammalian side yeah. and the invertebrate side of it uh, with, with, a, with a decent bird collection. But yeah, yeah so. well, considering that it's heritage, I'm not surprise it's heavily mammalian right so, <laughs> so, knowing the folks involved in, right. in recent you know several decades uh or more um so so you work with graduate students you work with some of the faculty in undergrad as well or not well so, so yeah so actually so as the executive director um, i mainly focus on the mu museum portion of it the, there is a you know there's a section that does the the, the granting um yeah. the the um the degree granting uh portion and so but those students work with our collection staff and it, it, it gives them an opportunity to learn about 
collection care, learn about how museums run, learn how uh, to go about that. And so they're, they, so those students get internships and they work in the collections. They work with our educational programs. They work with the exhibitions. They work with all of those. Uh, but we also do work with campus with whether they're graduate students who need materials from us, whether they're um, classes that actually need to come to the museum and do projects and things like that. Um, and then also just working with uh, faculty and stuff like that from the university itself and whether it's a great collaboration in terms of projects, exhibitions, um, and the like. So. And you told me how many visitors come through? We typically have, uh, well, not last year. Last year we okay, had to obviously well, we'll probably give you a pass on thank last year. you. So, <laughs> so uh, we typically serve 150 to 170 thousand. Um, and you're open now. And we're we are open now. We are open. Um, our we're open um, Tuesdays through Saturdays from ten to five, and then Sundays one to five. For kids, there's plenty of interesting things for kids to oh, see. Absolutely, I think it's far. I think it's, what's nice again being a, a multidisciplinary museum is there's there's something for everybody. So even if you know you may have a family member that mainly is interested in uh, portraits, you know portraits, and and um, there's something to see here. If there's someone who's interested in paleontology and dinosaurs, there's definitely something to see here. If there's if you're interested in um, artifacts, you know from the Southwest. There's, there's, we have that as well. So it's really nice to, to, and then we also have again these temporary exhibits. So they're always, they're always coming in and, and, and leaving. And, so. and one, one of those right now is the Art Deco. The glass, Art Deco, yes, glass know. art, which is, which yeah. is a beautiful, beautiful one that we have right yeah. now. Just um, fascinating. What have I not asked you that our listeners need to know? One thing you can ask again is, was, you know, we love being a part of uh, Texas Tech University, and but saying the Museum of Texas Tech University kind of just. You know, I don't know if it fully gives you know, as an idea that again we are multidisciplinary, which means that you have, you know, so if you're interested in anything, it's not just we don't just have to have historical artifacts of Texas Tech. We're actually no, we we. That's, I mean, so that's one. Do uh, you one, even have any of those? Uh, we, we, I'm sure we have some, <laughs> uh, but but again, you know, again, we you know, again, if you're interested, as I said, in in all of these from art, clothing, and textiles, history, paleontology, natural sciences. No, um, you're you're. You're a full we're a museum. museum. We're a full-blown yeah. museum. We're it just very, yeah. happens to sit right. and be associated with Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, then we have an archaeological, an active archaeological site. Uh, mm -hmm. We have, and we have a laboratory. So we, um, another interesting thing, and again, as all organizations had to, to do during 2020, um, we were, we made sure, we were utilized and made sure that we were useful in, in other ways when we, when we were sort of close to the public. So in fact, our large sculpture court, um, we were the host of the COVID testing site for most of the end of last year for for Lubbock, um, um, you know, right now, um, you know, with spacing distances and because our university, you know, cares about the safety of our students, but also wants them to be able to have in person, you know, they're they're across, you know, everybody's across campus and in, in larger rooms to sort of, you know, to make sure that you have social distancing and things like that. So we actually have um, class classes going on right now in our auditorium and things like that. So it's. Uh, so if somebody wanted to visit, they would come in the entrance on the north end. Yes, on 4th Street. Facing 4th Street. Mm -hmm. Great. And it's it, there's an interesting dry arroyo there, there that is. I had not seen before. Because yeah, I always came in the side door or the so, back door. So we actually worked with landscape architecture. And again, we wanted to have a, a thing sort of that was um, natural and showcasing the, you know, highlighting sort of the topography of the uh, Llano Estacado as well as the native vegetation. And so... 
So we have, um, it'll start greening up a lot more as the spring rains and summer monsoons come in, which will be, which will be nice right now. It's still sort of, you know, again, we're just barely into spring. And I'm so, waiting on those summer monsoons. So yeah. It'll, yeah, so it'll be, <laughs> and then we are actually going to have a new, um, um, wing built onto the museum and it'll be open in uh 2023 which we're really excited really about. Mm-hmm. where is that gonna be uh they'll actually the window actually you're staring at right now right there is where it'll, oh, it'll, be, it'll be so the, the the lower floor will be a collections area the the central uh the first floor will be a gallery and then the second floor will be for classrooms and for the museum studies program so wow so that's mm-hmm. is it that hadn't broken ground yet they've only started um they broke, yeah, they just, they broke down the wall to the exterior courtyard, and they'll they'll start the summer. So, okay, so you've had quite a varied career in 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 sciences, and this is kind of a includes so many so many things, not just sciences here, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, and I just I love that you've embraced educating folks around lots of different things, and that's that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that's absolutely. Why I'm here. So any last thing you want to tell our listeners? Um, I think, and again, I think it's it's something that I, I got from the Fourth Museum of Science History, from the Discovery Center, and from here. And just, and I think it's just really important is um, the importance of lifelong learning. It's, it's, it's exercising your mind, um, which, you know, we all need exercise. If you, and so, and so it's, it's, it's always the fact that, you know, there's always more to learn. There's always something new to discover. And I think that's a, that's the, that's the, that's the most important thing, I guess. It's just that, you know, to be, you know, curious and to inquire and to, to learn and to, you know, again, you know, go in with, with, um, sort of, as, you know, go into it, you know, with an open mind when you, when you, you know, for new experiences and stuff like that. And so I think that's what is really great about museums and science centers and zoos and, um, all type of those, those type of things. And again, it can, it could come from anywhere. And again, you may have been wanting to come to the museum just because you, you want to see this one exhibit, but then something else catches your eye and you learn something new about that as well. So it's, 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 it's really nice for that. Well, great. And I would encourage folks, if you're in Lubbock or if you're not in Lubbock and can get here, come by and visit. It's, it really is a great museum. And I really appreciate you being on my podcast, Erin, and thank you. And thank you for listening to Annette on Education. So Erin and I kept talking and I was like, wait, we've got to record this. So, so, so we were talking about his still doing some research. So, so right, right. So, so besides paleobotany, um, I still do research. And again, at the Discovery Center, I started doing a lot more entomology, and I actually did stuff on malacology, which is a study of mollusks. And so, sort of like oh, the, I remember that. Yeah, so I did systematics of uh, you know working with a friend on on you know systematics of an evolution of abalones, which you don't get many in Amarillo, but. Uh, one thing we were working uh, working on with um, some colleagues in Utah and California, um, one of the colleagues in, in Utah working on um, native bees. Um, and what's really interesting about the the Texas panhandle and the, and actually the southern high plains in general is that while while um, a lot of information is in order you know for agricultural pests of you know in in insects and stuff like that, there's not a lot of study done on sort of the native other you know the other insects that that really um, are fascinating. And so, um, just every year I'd go out often to my in-laws property. Um, and that's in Amarillo. Uh, it's, it's between, uh, it's just South of, um, it's between Bushland and, um, 
uh, what is the name of it? Bishop Hills, and oh, you know okay. that. You know, yeah, okay. so just 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 on that on that so near um, near uh, Wildcat Bluff. Okay. And so we, you know, I I collect there, um, and there are some really cool rare bees that occur all over in sort of this in sort of these areas where there's still sort of some native vegetation. Um, and one of these is a well, actually two of these were are called kleptoparasitic bees. And I asked what that meant, so that's why we're <laughs> so, back on here. So it's really fascinating. So most people think you know know bees and this and the general story, and most of it is for most bees. Um, you know, a the bee gathers. Uh, it takes nectar, so that it has its energy. But it take, typically, what it does, it grabs uh, pollen, and that pollen it will then make into what's called a pollen bread. And, uh, you know, it'll either be in a burrow or something like that. It'll, it'll make this little pollen bread, uh, which is it's f- very protein rich. It'll lay an egg on it and then it'll close that up. And that's what the, you know, when the, when the egg hatches and the, the baby larva, come, larva comes out, it'll eat that in and that'll, that'll sustain it and it'll then grow into an adult bee. Um, some bees find that a little bit too much work. I'm like, why do why do all this work? Why do I need to go from Can flower go to flower? To the grocery why store? do I have to find the right flower? Why do I have to find the right pollen? Because a lot of these bees are specialized in so, and so kleptoparasitic bees have taken this and they say, you know what? This is too much work. I'm going to follow another bee species that had that likes the kind of pollen that my babies will like. I'll follow it. It'll make a pollen bread. It'll dig the tunnel. It will go and it'll lay its egg. And then when it leaves, I will come in. I'll take away that egg. I'll lay my egg on it. I'll close it up, and I'll be on my way. So kleptoparasitic. Kleptoparasitic. So I that's love what it. they do. Um, and actually, I think what's people if, if ever that's another interesting subject, which we'll probably get off topic, <laughs> is that all, and bees are so fascinating. You know, everybody, you know, bumblebees, you know, are social bees just like other, you know, and they typically, you know, there's a queen, you know, an overwintering queen typically, you know, has enough. You know, she'll come out, she'll forage, she will then again, you know, lay eggs, have enough pollen, it'll she'll start raising workers, and those workers will then start, you know, once they once they grow, they'll start foraging and they'll make this so they'll make the the nest larger and they'll and, and so the colony will grow. Well, even those those bumblebee queens, you know, some bumblebee queens will do that. And other bumblebee queens will say, you know what? Again, this is a lot of work. I don't want to do this much work. And so they will find the same species and they'll say, you know what? I'm just going to go in there. I'm going to attack and kill the queen. <laughs> and I'm going to take over this nest and the workers. And I'm going to have them, you know, lay, you know, raise my my offspring. And so... Is there a term for that? Uh, well, I'd, <laughs> regicide, I don't know. <laughs> and so it's, 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 it's where... Um, Nature is so much more complicated than we sort of we can, and so <laughs> life is much it is, more complicated. It is. So that's fascinating. Yes. Uh, but no, there's you know the insects of the high plains and 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 the southern high plains are are fascinating. Um, and again, there's there's new things to be discovered. As I said, but I think this one bee, kleptoparasitic bee species that we looked at, um, it's only been it's it was only until recently until I you know discovered there, and that was mainly just because I knew what I was looking for. It was been. It's only was found in central and southern Texas, and you know even along the Gulf Coast. And so you know. So they're in the Texas Panhandle. They're in the Texas Panhandle too. There's a lot of diversity there, and so you know if if all you think there is is tumbleweeds and and you know dry grass, that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of really cool stuff there as well, and that stuff and that and those grasses are cool as well. Well, and a lot of my background's desert biology, so oh my gosh, you talk about a really rich and diverse place, Mm -hmm. and. The Panhandle's partly Part desert. Part of it, exactly. So, so. so that's that's cool. Um, maybe not quite as desert 
the as big bend area, but no, no, it's, 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 it's sort of the semi-arid grasslands. These short, these are part of what are, you know the ecoregion is called the Western Short Grasslands, but it's probably the second or third largest ecoregion in the United States. It's got a really amazing diversity in terms of birds, as mm-hmm. as you know, as 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 many of your listeners probably know, and it's. Um, and again, it's 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 an incredible place, and there's a lot of biomass, and there's a lot of nutrients there. So that's why. Well, that's fascinating. Thanks for that extension. Of and course. Again, thanks for listening to an education. <laughs>